Hey there, Jay. It's John here from the Red Dust Diaries RPG podcast. I've just started listening to your latest GM Diary episode where you're talking about your Dolmenwood play test game, and you mentioned Fort Volga. Now, my players have recently visited Fort Volga as well. However, since I'm going on what's in my collection of Wormskin fanzines, I don't think there's an awful lot about Fort Volga in there, so I just had to like freestyle it, and I did it as this fort that was occupied by mercenaries and was a good place to pick up hirelings, stuff like that. It was all a bit sort of rough and tumble, a bit sort of grim and gritty, you know, controlled by sort of mercenary lords, effectively. I just wondered, assuming you don't mention it further in the episode, how you handled Fort Fulger. Anyway, I'm going to get back to listening to the rest of the episode now, dude. Thanks very much for continuing to put out content. It's really keeping me going, listening to this while I'm working from home. Take care and stay well, dude. Things he won't share with us The darkness in his brain The dungeon master's plan The pleasure and the pain What's better left unknown Keep calling out to me I hear him think out loud To die Only the brave shall come My name is Che Webster, and this is the Roleplay Rescue Dungeon Master's Diary. Hello Rescuers, welcome back to part two of Dungeon Master's Diary number 33. John Allen Large there from RDD RPG, heading up the show with a good question about Fort Volga. John, very straightforward really. Um, I'm taking part in Gavin Norman's playtest of the Dolmenwood material. And while I can't say very much, what I will say is that Fort Volga has a mention so far in the materials that I've seen. I think there's going to be actually a very detailed um, description of the place coming later but i have a very brief description of the place um as a small kind of fort with a bit of uh pier i suppose you know like um places where barges and and, and ships and boats and stuff were coming in uh down the river from north and um unloading at fort volga yeah, I just took those basic details and uh, I kind of kept it light, actually. I kept it really cursory. My guys arrived at night, kind of late, just after they'd locked up. The merchant they were with was able to kind of persuade the guards to let them in, so that was great. Uh, and they only stayed, you know, sort of overnight. Uh, the merchant paid for their digs. They were up in the morning. They tried to sell some stuff to a local weaponsmith. Um, in the end, they, they actually traded uh, some gear they needed uh, a bow and some arrows bits and pieces uh, in return for taking a sword a, a kind of wrapped up sword to um, prigwort and they left so i didn't have to worry too much about it i kind of think i bought myself some time waiting for gavin's further details but um, i hope that's not too much of a spoiler and gavin won't be annoyed with me i hope that's enough to satisfy your curiosity and yeah, it's just a great question. Thanks so much for that, dude. Really appreciated it. So without any further ado, guess we better dive into the episode, eh? Saturday morning. Had a very good game of Dolman Wood with Ian and Andy last night. That was great. And uh, really grateful to those two guys for coming on and playing. 
uh, in the face of uh, a little bit of a picture invasion from uh, Ian's kids at one point, which is really funny. Um, but actually, to be fair, you know, they kind of herded them away and very quickly were over that. It was fine. I think Andy and I were both trying to be incredibly patient with that, um, as you have to in these days of, you know, home uh, imprisonment, really. Anyway, great game. Uh, a couple of really important thoughts that kind of bubbled up uh, this morning, and I just wanted to grab them. So uh, the situation was them heading from Prigwart down to Dreg and then from Dreg to Langshorn. And in fact, um, what you had is uh, essentially an eight hex, I think eight or nine hex journey for them to complete. And the way I've been running this is as a hex crawl, as they enter each hex, we've been having an encounter roll. And in previous sessions, so this is the fifth session we were having, the previous four sessions, they probably had two encounters on the road each day, uh, each, sorry, not each day, but each um, session at least. Uh, in most cases, probably average, I think the average was three. Um, but then anyway, they had the multiple encounters and we were halfway, so the first part of the journey, half of it was from Prigwart to to dreg and essentially there's a um four chances of them getting a one right now i'd already set up so um from the prep i did earlier i i had a look at the um the undead horde card that i drawn with the necromancer and the skeletons which if you just heard it a second ago so it's probably fresher in your memory than it is in mine um and i'd got that i'd Basically, there were three zombies, ten skeletons, and this necromancer. I'd taken the time to create a magic user, a level three magic user, who, and I'd given that magic user some magic items, which I'll talk about perhaps in a minute. Um, and I'd kind of managed to rationalise in my mind how a level three magic user had managed to animate the dead and was um, kind of decided to essentially attack one of the settlements uh, with his undead. And... Um, I pictured it in my mind as this guy was going to the woodcutter's camp, which is just on the other side of the water from Dragon, trying to get some vengeance, and um, that he was going to come potentially down, be on the road between Prigwart and Dreg. So as he got closer to the woodcutter's camp hex, I decided that the chance of uh, encounter would increase. So the first hex, I asked them, it's a one, you know, it's a one in six chance. And I was asking the players, by the way, to roll a d6. So I was going, Ian, roll a d6. It's a one, you know, one in six chance of an encounter. Um, when they were two hexes away, it became two in six. And when they were one hex away, it became three in six. None of those encounters got triggered. They arrived at Woodcutter's camp. They started to sort out getting a boat across the drag. And it seemed to me like, I don't know, it just didn't feel right for me to um, use that encounter if they were no longer in the vicinity of where of what I'd imagined. And actually it was feeling like we'd done about, I don't know, 45, 30 foot to 45 minutes or so of, um, you know, interaction and travel. Uh, nothing incredibly interesting had happened, you know. Um, and so I decided that the, as they were at the camp, I just decided that the Necromancer would attack the camp. So we played that, in, that encounter out and um, that became a really interesting, marginally tactical battle. Um because there was a lot of monsters, if you like, and you know the party is well, that was at that point six, you know, six characters involved. There's four characters the players are in charge of, and there were two NPCs as well. 
Um, the party did what I'd hoped they might do, where the um, Crump the Knight decided to like, be knightly and took his party to engage these, what well, at first they thought were figures, uh, humanoids coming, maybe bandits coming from the woods. Um, as they got closer, they could see that they were shambling. Uh, there was three zombies up front shambling out, and then the skeletal warriors with shields and spears, I decided, um, coming behind, <clears throat> and the necromancer behind them and um it was quite an interesting tactical battle uh i had the necromancer actually using spells i tried to play him very smart and uh it was a tough it was a really really tough fight um i'm just gonna throw a couple of thoughts out there so um i used um you know the whole uh what's it called i can't remember the name of the spell create darkness you know where you you it's the opposite of the light spell oh it's just darkness isn't it 15 foot radius, boomf, of uh, used the necromancer used that to cover the advance of his skeletons because the zombies were getting shot down by the party, which is really, really cool. Uh, two arrows will take down a zombie, which is, you know, kind of cool. Um, and that made, I think that allowed the party to feel quite, oh, okay, we can handle this. And then the skeletons started coming out. Otherwise, there's two ranks. I'd done it where there were six in the front rank, four in the back rank, and they were advancing. And then suddenly the necromancer throwed down darkness to block that so the party withdrew uh, nearer to the edge of the village and formed the second line and waited whilst the part the um the skeletons were advancing i had as they were about to emerge from the zone of um darkness there was about 50 feet between the edge of the darkness and the party so again they were going to get shot to bits so i had the necromancer use uh, hit one of his magic items to cast haste and hasted them and um Basically, uh, they then came charging forward, and that was really fun. That was that was kind of a really cool challenge. They were like, "Oh crap!" So they, the skeletons only moved twenty feet, so they were able to move forty, get within ten feet. A couple got shot down by arrows, and then there was into melee. Um, now it was interesting, even with hasted uh, skeletons that can like do two attacks with their spears, and there was I think was they hit the line, there were six or seven of them still up um, with two against sort of three characters. Um, there was the friar up front because he was going to go and turn. Um, and I'll come back to him in a second, but he wasn't up at the point in which the attack hit, the hasted attack hit. So it was just that it was Shank and Crump who were AC2, heavily armoured. Even there, the skeletons couldn't really hurt them. So it was kind of fun to see the rain of blows coming in. They took some wounds. They are, you know, but they didn't go down and uh, they, the, they were able to smash down the, the, the skeletons quite quickly. The fight only went three rounds in melee, um, so we're talking thirty seconds, you know, of time. But it was it was good. It was fun. Onto the friar. The third thing I had the magic user do um, as he emerged from behind the skeletons as they moved forward and got to ten feet. He emerged from the um, be, with them behind them, just behind them, from the um, uh, ca- uh, area of darkness, and then cast a magic missile at the friar. And, um, oh my goodness, Magic Missile. 1d6 plus 1 in um, BX, in OSE. Not 1d4, as we might, I might have expected. And, um, yeah, it killed the fire outright. So the the ability to turn was taken out. And I felt that was a reasonable thing for the Magic user to do. And Necromancer, you know, will recognise a priest in the, the friar in all his robes with his cross and all the rest of it. So um, it seemed reasonable. The guys didn't seem... I mean, there were obviously uh, Ian was upset to lose his friar, his beloved friar character, but um, 
actually, it, you know, it felt right. And I, I, I sort of said, well, is it zero? He should be dead. We'll worry about that at the end of the combat, exactly what was happening there. Um, and that led to a little discussion afterwards about lethality. And um, we decided, I decided to give him a 5% chance of a sort of divine intervention because he was carrying the items they'd rescued from the St. Abbey, the Abbeyus include. These were blessed items. I thought there'd be a small chance of divine intervention. They rolled it and obviously failed. Um, but it was it was a poignant moment in that in, in our not our first death but our first character death it was player character death we'd lost an NPC um, a couple of sessions back but you know so that was a poignant moment and that led me to some thinking because I was you know I was thinking well this was originally a random encounter you know um, but I feel like I made the decisions that were reasonable and rational um, and that made for an interesting evening. It made for a very much more interesting evening than it would have been if they'd just gone through and, and, and then through Dreg. Because it turned out they had no encounters from Dreg to Langshorn either. So they would have run no random encounters on the road at all. So it would have been essentially just a relatively short session of them moving from A to B and then off. So... Um, Actually, I think it made for a sort of a nice climax to the adventure we've been having with five sessions wherein that was the only serious kind of fight they've been involved in. Uh, there's been a few random encounter type things where they got a little unlucky here and there, but basically they've been okay. They managed to avoid those fights. Um, they'd done what they'd set out to do, relatively straightforward mission, recovering his items and taking them back to the bishop. Um uh, so that was that was the first thing. Um, I'm talking way longer than I expected. Um, but there were a couple of thoughts. First of all, um, I noticed that uh, when I started this campaign, this playtest up, we decided that each player would have two player characters and we'd also have some NPCs. Um, I've noticed that at first they were both playing both of those primary characters quite well and equal balance. But I've noticed that, like for example, with Ian, he's much more focused on Shank, his fighter, than he is on the Friar, uh, Jasper. So... When Jasper died, I think it was less of an impact, perhaps because he's much more focused on Shank. And I noticed also that Andy tends to pri- uh, primarily favour Crump, his knight, and Pithwilder, his magic user, is much more in the background. So that was interesting. I, I think uh, going forward, um, I've allowed them... What we're, we're going to be going on to do in a fifth... some little bit of playtesting with fifth level characters and i've allowed them to create one character each and also allowed them to create one npc that is two levels lower than their so third level npcs um but i think that that's better balance i think they'll treat the npcs as they do the others which is as kind of secondary um uh and they'll be able to focus more on their primary character which i think is better for them and for me um so yeah, a number of like insights and thoughts. Uh, there's probably more in there somewhere, and I'll let them bubble around uh, for now. But um, yeah, just wanted to fill you in on what happened in Dominwood. It's still Saturday morning. Turns out I have a bit more to say. Um, I've been thinking a lot about wanting to have a proper long-term fantasy, actually, campaign going, and thinking a lot about how. I really want to develop what I've learned uh, from doing Mega Dungeon and um, what I have been learning recently from running Dolmenwood in terms of doing Hexcrawl. And I want to adapt all of that, um, bring it together with my favourite game engine, which is GURPS. And um, I want to use the GURPS Dungeon Fantasy material, but in a less munchkin kind of way. I, 
I mean, GURPS Dungeon Fantasy, when you read the first book um, on adventurers, it uh, actually explicitly states this is a really munchkin-y kind of game. And I think for me, I'm, I'm looking for a flavour that's halfway between a sort of very grounded uh, fantasy that is, you know, internally consistent, and de has depth and everything, halfway between that sort of flavour and the sort of D&D uh, freewheeling, you know, adventuring style thing that I, I've always played. And um, I think the high power level of Dungeon Fantasy at 250 point characters for me is quite off-putting because I'm not wanting power fantasy, you know. I'm wanting, uh, you know, that zero to hero feeling uh, a little bit more. And we've had a lot of fun with that with with Thal. I've, I really enjoyed you know, we had some randomly generated characters essentially, and it's been a really lot of fun. So I've been I've been adapting that on my blog recently. I posted up a fighter, um, sort of from what for one of a better word template, but it's really not a template because it's about how to randomly generate a fighter with four d six or roll for your attributes, which is quite weird in fourth edition GURPS, and certainly a different approach to how it was done even in first, second, and third edition GURPS. You know, random rolls there with 3d6 for each stat I found that too swingy so I kind of came up with a different way of doing it and what I think I want to do is adapt that random generation process which is quite quick um, and that sort of but it's a sort of halfway house between a template where you sort of are picking everything and it has random tables so there are some things that like the fighter had some basic core skills that you got you know and and, and they're fixed and you've got some choices of what weapons you, skills you had and then there's like the secondary skills, the the flavouring skills, if you like, the other adventuring skills that I kind of made into a random table, um, as well as the advantages and disadvantages being on a random table. And that would generate characters that are somewhere between about 75 and 100 points, probably. Um, but of course, it being random, there's a bit of swing there each way. Some of the characters might be much lower points than that, maybe down to sort of 50. Um and some might be a, just a, you know, it's in that range of somewhere between 50 and 150, which I know is a big range. Uh, I'd need to actually test it a little bit, I think. And so that's part of why I want to play. Because I think you can sort of put something out there and people can play with it and then you start adapting it as you go in time, you know. And it may be that I end up with a more fixed template approach, but um, that's what I want to do. Anyway, I'm wittering about stuff that most of you probably, it's far too technical GURPS, so probably should save that for my design diary. Um, yeah, so I think about this campaign. Now, one of the ideas, I've been talking a lot over the last few days about using maps, you know, taking a world map that exists. I was talking about Han in the week, and um, I've been thinking about Mistara, actually. I've really long wanted to go into that world. It's a world I first discovered when I opened the expert set of Dungeons & Dragons. Now, I think I've mentioned this before. I had the Beckme the BECMI 1983 uh, basic set, but I actually bought oddly, the BX1981 edition basics um, expert set. Uh, so essentially I had two slightly mismatched sets of rules, which I never realised as a kid and um, probably didn't play enough to sort of twig. But in there anyway, and it's the same I think in Beckme, or very similar in Beckme, the expert set isn't all that different. There was a map um, in expert and it is basically an area of the duchy of karamikos which later on became part of mistara and um i love that map and i always i was always quite intrigued by that map and i always wanted to go play there now of course in expert that's presented as a bit of an example map and there are then procedural rules for doing hex crawling which i really want to adapt to gurps i want to 
use the D&D procedural stuff quite faithfully, actually, and bring that into my GURPS game. But just use a different game engine because I find Dungeons & Dragons uh, just a little clunky, really. So um, that's what I want to do. I want to take that map. And um, I was kind of thinking, well, actually, the whole of Mystara exists as a world, so why not just use that? And, of course, the barrier for me, the barrier of entry there is that Mystara has all these gazetteers that came out later for Beckme. Um, But actually, there's a lot of lore there. And uh, I have two problems with worlds that are pre-built. The big problem I have is that um, is is there's two things. There's a there's the the problem of law, L O R E. Um, you know, knowing the law, like you have to get into the books, and read everything, and know everything, and get it all together, and it's just intimidating. It's my problem with Glorantha, actually, much as I love that world, but I can't get in because I I feel like the first barrier is on, I need to know everything, um, and I can't possibly know everything. But the second one is actually a player perception thing. And it's this, uh, something I've been talking a lot about on Discord recently, actually. I uh, hit this with Han. I've hit this with lots of settings. There's this sense of player perception that you have to be by canon. There's a, a canon of writings. And you have to like be by the book um, in terms of setting, in terms of world. And I can't promise that because I, I find that restrictive. I, I find bits of the world silly. So, for example, you know, Mistara has gnomes, and um, I don't like gnomes as an idea in my game. I find it all way too twee and American image. It's like an American Irish thing that, for me. Uh, it just does my head in. Um, you know, it's all like reminds it has all the wrong associations for me. It reminds me of the leprechaun and green hatted men and all that cheesy, horrible. Uh, cultural appropriation of Irish Celtic law that I find, I'll be honest, I find it slightly offensive. Um, I actually, you know, having a best friend who's from Northern Ireland and having steeped myself in Irish literature and Irish law and Celtic like law, I, I feel that we're a long way short of honouring that in any way, you know. And I'd, I'd, I also want my fantasy to be darker. So anything that makes it slightly cheesy, funny is to me jarring, you know? So, yeah, that's why I don't like gnomes. And unless I could make them very dark, I, I wouldn't want to go there. Um, and I kind of feel like the same with halflings as well. I've, um, I, whilst I've always been a massive fan of the the, the, the Hobbit, um, I find that they're sort of superfluous, really. Um, they're sort of every... They, I mean, in Tolkien, they're the everyman for me. They kind of represent that pastoral, idyllic, slightly parochial parochial um not actually slightly at all are they utterly parochial kind of village life innocence before technology destroyed everything kind of that's what they represent to me in when i read the hobbit and the lord of the rings and um and i i feel like there is again there's that tweeness to it that um i don't necessarily want in my world uh if i did i know i can handle hobbits and halflings more but again i still feel i have to have a particular niche and reason so again, I kind of resist those sorts of elements that, that are going to be in the law and um, I want to change them at the very least. You know, I don't mind having, I suppose I don't mind having gnomes in there if I can do something dramatic with them and different with them. That's what I'm saying. And so I, I guess what I'm saying is if I if I run Mistara as a map, I need to see it more as a map and less as the law. And I need the freedom to do that. So I, the, the, the issue, I guess, is that I need my players to be okay with that, you know, that I don't want them pouring over the gazetteer and then getting disappointed with me because there's things in there they like that I don't and that I haven't put in my world. 
I kind of need them to understand that really they should just have the map and pick up the law through the play. You know, that it shouldn't be a thing of kind of you go read the book and, and get ginned up. That is, to me, really, really difficult for me as a dungeon master. I don't know if others have this problem, uh, whether it's just me and the control freak in me. But I, um, yeah, I don't, I don't like it when players try and impose on me their vision of a fantasy world without my consent. And I guess um, that's why I'm a dungeon master, you know. That's why I'm a referee, because when you come to play at someone's table and they are GMing, you are already accepting that you are going to enter their vision of something. Um, if I go and play at someone else's table, I leave that behind. I understand that I am not going to get to impose my will on this world, well, not any more than my players' will. Uh, as a as a character you know my character's will is what I mean you know that what my character would do within that context but there are lots of questions that I need to ask if I'm a player at a GM's table to make sure I'm not stepping all over their vision you know and um and it's a joint thing over time you get into the flavor and the feeling of the world and you kind of know how to go with that um a recent example of that playing in Caesarea with um uh Chicago Wiz is that you know I'm sort of trying to remain faithful to what I remember of Ultima, but I'm also not pushing my will too much. I'm I'm going along with the party and going along with the world and seeing how he's presenting it and getting into the feel of it. And I think, you know, over time I'll, I'll absorb that more and more. I'm getting there already and I'll absorb that and I'll be able to maybe make more suggestions later on and maybe push my boundaries a little bit further and maybe make suggestions that are in fitting and in keeping with the world and knowing and you know but ultimately it'll all come through questions and through a gentle sort of prodding my way into a world rather than you know just sitting there and sort of saying oh i want to okay i want to play a dragonborn now please you know in a world where that isn't a thing you know and demanding that of the gm i find that very difficult to deal with with players like that um, anyway i'm wittering far too much it's turned into another 11 minute you know me whinging kind of gym thing so i'm going to shut up i don't know if there's anything of use there but that's where i'm at when i think i want to play miss star i want to use the map so what i'm asking i guess is does anyone want to play there anyone want to come to miss because i'd love to do it as long as of course we don't have to stick by the law real quickie the mail person just came which is fantastic and uh amongst a couple of parcels i got a new belt uh, which i need because i've lost so much weight and my waist size is well somewhere between 36 and 38 so it's originally 37 inches down from 44 inches six months ago um but i also got um some dice i got some new dice yay but specific um something i remember from the 70s actually in wargaming was the average dice uh, a dice that has one two one five two threes and two fours on it and um, reading Tony Barth Wargaming I was reminded he's an average dice in a couple of the rules there and um, I don't have any so well I do now I bought myself some you can get them from um, the dice shop in the UK which is great uh, dieshop.co.uk I think that is and uh, I got two they're, they're pipped so they've got green pips and red pips and I've got three of each color which is great white creamy white color with those pips anyway going to use those and it kind of occurred to me that i it, that there are some uses for average dice that uh i immediately think of i was thinking about rolling stats for example rolling hit points you know you could get rid of the one because you're rolling on an average dice but you also get rid of the six 
Um, I also thought that uh, it might be interesting having a random table which uses average dice. So the range of numbers, say, on a 3d6 roll or 2d6 roll is slightly different. On a 2d6, it would become from 4 to 10 um, with a very different spread, much more towards the middle. On a 3d6 table, it becomes from 6 to let's work it out 15 um again might be quite interesting especially for rolling up stats uh say for GURPS for example might be an interesting thing to do so hmm thoughts eh isn't it interesting this uh sort of ideas that come from the root and heart of old gaming and wargaming um I think I can find some use for those dice